like for you to open the Word of God this morning to Romans chapter 7. The verses I'll be dealing with primarily this morning will be verses 14 through the end of the chapter, some in chapter 8 as well. The verses, verses 14 through 25 are somewhat controversial. Uh, Some hold that the Apostle Paul here, as he mentions the law of God, is writing as a Jew, as a Pharisee, under the law of God and how he struggles to make himself right pertaining to the law. And some very good and godly scholars hold to that position. I I do not think that that position is correct. I believe that the Apostle Paul is simply carrying on the narrative, not making an extreme break with the narrative, and is speaking about himself as a Christian, yet he does compare himself with the law of God but also emphasizing the great struggle that he has, yes, even as a Christian, to please and to honor God. So hear God's Word beginning with verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. May the Lord give us wisdom and understanding from His holy word this morning. As we live our Christian lives... There are many different reflections 
that we might have concerning how we're doing. How did you do this past week? Could you say that, no problem, I got the Christian life down pat, I've nipped it in the bud. I'm doing real well. As a matter of fact, I'm doing so well that I, th- I think I'm reaching near sinless perfection. I see some of you laughing. So uh, I don't think anybody here would claim that. As a matter of fact, if you, if you do, you, you're, you are no doubt in violation of the Ninth Commandment, bearing false witness. That's simply not the way it goes. And then the only other one, other ones would say, "Well, you know, uh, I know I've been saved. I know I've been forgiven. Uh, so you know, I, I'm pretty much good to go. Because of His marvelous grace, I can go out and I can do, you know, what I want to do. Because I know God will forgive me. I know that God loves me that much. Here again is an error, a gross error." of undermining the grace of God and thinking that the grace of God provides a license to sin. In other words, I've got my fire insurance, I've got my card punch, so I can do either. You see, either one of these views is totally contrary of what the Bible talks about our Christian growth. Indeed, the Word of God says that if you are a child of God, you will be progressing in your faith. There may be four steps ahead and three steps back, but there is progression. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, certainly not. May it never be. If we claim that we are in grace and then somehow feel that we can continue in sin. What a ridiculous thought. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with, with him, with Christ, for the purpose of, in other words, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When we were when we were redeemed, we were we were regenerated, we were made alive, we were given the power to not become a slave to sin anymore. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ is a perfect example. Likewise, you you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, verse, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You see, there's a progression. There's a war going on, and we are to expect that we are no longer to bow down to sin and obey its every whim. So as Paul is developing this narrative of really sanctification, our growth in Christ, from chapter through chapter six all the way through through chapter eight, he then 
in chapter 7 begins to talk about the law of God, which I believe he talks about in relation to himself as a Christian and not just a Jew that was under the law. So he begins to compare himself to the law of God. See, it's still part of the main theme. Because why? The law is still given as a schoolmaster. It's still our perfect standard through which we can tell whether or not we are measuring up to the the likeness of God. So he begins here in chapter 7 to relate then how that the law now applies to him. In chapter 7 and verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. In other words, the law simply makes us more and more aware of what sin is. Verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, albeit when one realizes the gravity of the commandment and the holiness God, then I see my own sin. Sin is revived then, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found actually to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. You see, Later, later on in verse 13, the law was given so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful to me. So Paul is looking at his own life in the present. Notice there in verse 14, he begins now, this is another strong argument where I believe that Paul is writing as a Christian. He changes now in verse 14 to the present tense. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am. You get that from now on. Paul is speaking then in the present tense. So Paul now is going to begin to deal with what I have referred to as a very real and present struggle in the Christian life. And this morning I've tried to make it very plain as I outline this this text for us this morning, I want us to focus on three major words. And those words are the who, the what, and the where. Very simple. First of all then, concerning this struggle, who exactly is the one that is struggling? Again, look at verse 14. For we know... Now see here, again, Paul is going to make a comparison between the law, the perfect standard, and himself. For we know, we as believers know, that the law is spiritual. The law is a good thing, right? 
It shows us our sin. It reveals to us the very character of God's holiness. It shows us all that we're not. So the law is a good thing. The law is a spiritual thing. And then in comparison, Paul says, but I, present tense, but I am carnal. Whoa. How is it? Here's the big question. Here's the big question. How, how can Paul say as a believer that I am carnal? No way then can Paul be referring to himself as a Christian if he calls himself carnal. But again, I point out to you that Paul is juxtaposing himself, comparing himself with the perfect and holy law of God. Now, this word, uh, this word carnal here is the word in the original text, sarkakos. And it simply means, in some ways it is uh, translated, with some translations, unspiritual. You see, the law is spiritual, and look at me. Look at me now. I am unspiritual. And the word is taken from another Greek word. It's uh, from the very base word of the word flesh, which is the word sarx. So you have sarx, the flesh, sarkikos, the word carnal. So what, what does he mean by this? Well, the, the word flesh, the, the, the root word, speaks to the, the, the very animal nature or the, simply the, the body or the fact that we are human or the natural, okay, not the spiritual, but the natural the, the, or the material, if you will. For example, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 27... Let's just turn over there real quick. Keep your place where you are in Romans 7. Romans chapter 15 and verse 27. The Apostle Paul was concerned in taking up an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he says there in verse 26, It pleased those that are from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution. And in verse 27... It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, in other words, the Gentiles have been blessed by the Jew in receiving the law, the truth of God, and the commandments, they bless the Gentiles, then their duty is also to minister back to the Jews in material things. Guess what the word material there is in the original? Sarkakos, carnal, you see. So Paul is not... Why do I show you all this? I'm saying all this to say that Paul is not presenting himself as the most wicked, evil person. He's just comparing himself to the good nature, the spiritual nature of the law. And he, on the other hand, is one that is of the flesh. He's material. He's earthly. He's human, you see. You see the analogy that Paul is making here. So he is saying that man, me as a man, I am a fallen, flawed creature in comparison to the perfect and holy law of God. And I think that's essentially all he's saying here. Look, look, uh, 
in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. As a carnal person, the Apostle Paul is saying, the law is perfect, but I'm not. I'm human. I'm carnal. Even though I'm a Christian, I'm still subject to this fallen nature. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And then furthermore then, he goes on to say, there in chapter 7 and verse 14, not only am I carnal, but I am sold under sin. Again, at a cursory glance at this, you would say, how can a Christian say that I am one who is sold under sin? But notice what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that I'm sold out to sin. In essence, that's what the non-Christian would say. I'm all for it. You know, I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. I walk according to the nature of God. No, they wouldn't admit that, would they? But that's what they would have to say in effect if they were uh, honest with who they were. Also notice here that Paul is not actively saying, I am one who is sold out to sin. But it's in the passive. You see, Paul is saying here that sin has sold me out. You see, that I am the recipient of the effects of sin. It's in the passive voice. So, in a sense, here, it, it is a lament before God. As David cried out, it, it was in sin that my mother conceived me. Or as, as Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. You see, I think that's what Paul is saying here. That I'm undone. That I am sold under sin. That I am a descendant of Adam who plunged the whole human race into sin. Look in chapter 6 now. And verse 20. See, he's not advocating in verse 14 that he is himself one who is a slave to sin. He couldn't be. Because look what he says in verse 20. He says, For when you, Christian, you were slaves of sin... Now he sees, he's simply advocating back in verse 14 that I am one according to the fall, according to, my, to Adam, I am sold to sin because of the sinful nature that I inherited through Adam. So he says in verse 20, For you were slaves of sins, and you were free in regard to righteousness. You, you were absent from righteousness. You were in the bondage of sin. You were in the the realm of sin. You were controlled by sin, you see. But now he's saying, Christian, you're not that way. So certainly Paul is not saying then in verse 14 that he is now steeped in sin, but simply that he has inherited this carnal nature, this fallen nature, this fleshly nature from Adam. Okay, so he says there in the present then that I 
am carnal, I am sold to sin. Are you trucking with me here so far? Okay, very good. So, he is struggling as we do struggle. Can, can you resonate with this, folks? Can, can you resonate with this? Amen. That w- this, this is a real struggle, right? That we would say, you know, I know the perfection of the law, and I know I ain't there. You see, there's a struggle. I know that, that there, there's a real and present struggle. Look at verse 15. We can resonate with this. For what I am doing, the bad, I do not understand. For what I will to do, the good things that I want to do, those are the things I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. Can you resonate with it? You see, we have this struggle, do we not? Uh, Again, how did you do this past week? Anybody perfect here? Were you short with your spouse? Were you disobedient to your parents? As a parent, were you too harsh with your child? Were you caught up in worry? Were you thinking about the material things of this world? Were there impure thoughts or undue anger in your heart that you know were sin, that you didn't want any part of it, but it was there? You still were struggling with this. This is what Paul is saying. And when he says then... I don't understand. Paul was not saying, you know, I'm really having an intellectual uh, problem here of figuring out, trying to figure out what's going on. I, I just can't gra- grasp this. You know, he's not having an intellectual problem. On the other hand, it's not a, a dilemma of the mind, but it's a spiritual quandary. It's perplexing to Paul. Well, let me ask you this. Would this be perplexing to somebody that did not know Christ? No. You see, because he was a child of God and he wanted to please God, he could not understand this. And the answer is through Adam, through uh, the, the very nature that we have inherited, it's still somewhat present with us. Is it no? We don't like it, but it is, and you can't deny it. The old man, the scripture says, has been crucified. Okay, but even though he's crucified, if some of the old Puritans says it's like we still drag that corpse around with us, and we're still still subject to the the habits and the propensities of that nature. There's a war going on. Verse verse sixteen. If then I I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is a good thing. Okay? I know the law says this, I don't want to do this, and end up doing that. You see? So the law has shown me that there is good, and so oftentimes I simply do not measure up. You see, we live in this every day. Amen? This is our life. We still have a struggle as long as we're on this earth. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 9 and verses 26 and 27. I run and I fight, but with a certain purpose. I discipline my body, bringing it into subjection. Simply trying to mortify sin, he's speaking of, along his journey towards glory. Towards that, that ultimate destination when he would obtain an imperishable crown. But right here, as we've been studying in Pilgrim's Progress for almost a year, there's a struggle, there's a fight, okay? There's resistance. In Galatians chapter 5, we'll look at this later on, that there is a constant struggle, there is a warfare continually between the things of the flesh and the things of the Spirit as they war against one another. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul has previously uh, spoken to the fact that he has a desire for that Christ like character. He wants to know Christ and in the power of his resurrection. He wants to be involved in the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. He wants to be conformed to the very death of Christ. But this, that's his desire. But this is what he says. It's not that I have already attained. See, I'm not there yet. The Apostle Paul admits that. And that's what he's doing in Romans chapter 7. It's not that I've already attained or have already perfected, but I press on. You see, there's the struggle. There's that aggressive, energetic action of a sprinter who's straining forward to win the prize. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold upon me. Though not yet apprehending. See, there's no spiritual perfection there. But I forget those things that are behind. You failed last week? By the grace of God, we go on. We appropriate that grace, don't we? We repent of it. We turn from it. We hate it. We press on, forgetting what is behind, focusing our eyes on the goal and the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, these these verses here in Romans chapter 7 are consistent throughout with what what the Apostle Paul says in other places regarding his Christian character. Was it inflated? I don't think so. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he says he's the very least of all the saints. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he said to Timothy, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You see, Paul wasn't just trying to display or portray some false humility. He was speaking that because that's what he believed. Do not we all believe that? You know, if we're trying to please God and we sin against God, it hurts us and we're grieved. We've grieved God. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. We don't like it. And we say, I'm the chief of sinners, you see. That's evidence that you are a child of God. If you don't if you cannot resonate with this struggle, then I would highly have to question whether or not you all are a Christian because the struggle is very real. Then look at verse 17. But now it is no longer I 
who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What's Paul saying here? Is it like a Flip Wilson of many years ago, decades ago, who said, the devil made me do it, you see? Not taking responsibility? Is he simply just trying to to cop out here? No. Why does he say that? It's not me who does this, but it's sin who dwells in me. Because you see, if, if Paul was writing, if Paul was writing simply as a Jew under the law, this would make no sense. You see what I'm saying? Because he would have to say then that, you know, I'm responsible for this. You know, I'm responsible for trying to keep the law of God. But he's not copping out. It's no longer I, the, I who do it. It's not the real me who's has fallen to this sin. That's not me. What's going on? I don't understand it. This is not what I want to do. You see. And it bothers me. It's sin that dwells in me. It's this remnant of the old man that's still hanging on to me. You see, that's a struggle with the flesh, with the carnal remnants of everything that has not yet been redeemed in us as a child of God, you see. So we have here then this question is answers. Who is this referring to? Paul is talking to about himself as a Christian, and Paul is talking about you and me, you see. That's where we are. That's the struggle that we are engaged in. So then second, we ask the question, what is it exactly that we're struggling against? Look then in verse 18. For I know that in me Let's skip that part that's in the parentheses for a while. For I know that in me nothing good dwells. Now you know that would uh, that would make a lot of sense if Paul was not a Christian here, right? That he, that he was just a Jew. He would say, you know, I I know that you know there's nothing in me that that is good. But is that true for a Christian? No. If we're redeemed by God, we have a new nature. God is pleased with us. We're in favor with God. We have the goodness of Christ in us. We couldn't say that. So he clarifies it, see. For I know that it that in me... Here's the clarification. Here's the explanation. Here's the what. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells within me. Again, he's still thinking about his comparison to law. The law is perfect. It's spiritual. It's good. And I'm not. As, I, as me, as a, as a redeemed child of God, I'm yet fallen, you see. And I still struggle with that flesh because I know that in this old remnant of Adam, this flesh, there is nothing good that dwells in me. Let's keep going. 
For to will is present. Does, does the sinner will? Does the sinner have any desire to please God, to honor God, and love God? No. Here's another, another evidence here. Paul, as a believer, says, I have this will. His will re- was renewed. It was made uh, to please God. It was uh, regenerated. It was made right with God. And that's the only, one, only reason why any of us here can even seek to honor God because God has taken that will that was in bondage, renewed it, made us alive to the point that where we now want to please God. That's what Paul is saying here. The will is present with me, but oh, if I look to just my human self, I can't perform it. For the good that I would do, I do not do. So the answer is not in us, you see. Paul here does not identify with the fact that that he can in and of himself please God. But notice he says, what's the problem? What's the what? The flesh, right? The flesh. So he is saying here that I am still subject to the flesh. In other words... Would you agree, Christian, that at times we can be rather flesh, fleshly? But notice what he says prior to this. Look in chapter 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see, the body of sin has been done away with. We're no longer a slave to sin. Look at chapter 7 and verse 5. For when we were, catch this, when we were past tense in the flesh. So as believers now... We're no longer in the flesh, although we can be fleshly, we can live according to the flesh. The flesh is the what that is in us still, but we are not categorically in the flesh. Are you with me? We're not there. We're not deemed as one who belongs to Adam. No, we belong to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were no longer dead in our sins. We're no longer caught up in the total and complete desires of the flesh. Verse 5, where the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring fruit unto death. Thank God we are no longer in the flesh. And then in chapter 8, verse 5, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 9, he says it again, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, but we still struggle with um, those fleshly desires which are still a part of our old Adamic nature, which someday we will escape that completely. We look forward to that day. So the what here in this narrative is the very fact that we still struggle with the flesh, although we are not in the flesh. And then finally, where is this struggle found? What's one of the sources for this struggle? 
in verse 21. I find then a law, that's not like the law of Moses, but he's speaking of concerning the word law as a principle. I find this this uh, principle that evil is present with me. Now he doesn't say that I am evil, does he? If he was a non-believer, writing as a non-believer, and he was honest, they would never say that, would they? But the believer would have to say that I'm evil. Jesus referred to the human humans as basically evil. Alright? We could turn over to, to John chapter three, or excuse me, Romans chapter three. Well let's let's do that. Romans chapter three. Here's a discourse concerning the evil nature of man. Chapter three and verse ten There is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. And may I add, there is none who desires to do good. Like the Apostle Paul is desiring here in Romans chapter 7. This is the plight of the man without God. No desire to do good. It goes on and on and on here. They're swift to shed blood. Their, their mouths are full of cursing. The way of peace that they know not. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's someone uh, that is totally steeped in evil. The sinner. The sinner without God. But here... Back in Romans chapter 7 and verse 21, there's this principle, though although we're not evil, we've been made righteous by Christ, evil is right there with me, you see. There's the where of the evil. It's, it's not me, but it's within me. And this principle, again, is always with us. That when I would do good, Evil is right there with me. And it's been that way ever since the fall. Think of Cain. One of the first instances after the fall. You know, he despised the fact that his brother brought forth, Abel brought forth a a sacrifice that was honorable to the Lord. He was angry about it. But the Lord says, Cain, be careful evil sin is crouching at the door and it desires to master you. But if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So how much more so does the devil try to place evil before us, those of us who are seeking to please God? You see, we are the ones that are in the real world. Real war, are we not? The Bible says that we are at war against the world. We're not talking about that much today. But the flesh, we're talking about that a lot, but also the devil. And the devil works with evil to put evil before our minds. The devil can, you know, the devil is not omnipresent, nor is he omniscient. He doesn't know all things, neither is he everywhere present. But through his emissaries through the demonic realm, he can influence our very minds, put evil before us and cause us to think wrongly or to do wrongly and to sin. 
The Scripture tells us that David was incited by Satan or moved upon or caused to perform a census for all of Israel, which God did not desire. But the devil himself stood against Israel and caused or influenced David to do a census. Also, Ananias and concerning Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, you know what happened there? The scripture says that Satan filled both of their hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. You see, they got this in their mind. The devil uh, put this in their mind because you know they were probably talking about it. You know, well, you know, we we got uh, this hundred percent amount, but you know, from this land, and and let's just say, you know, we want to look good before the church. Let's just say, you know, we got this eighty percent from the sale of land. This is what we're giving the church. You know, it was Satan that prompted them to do that. You know. And the Lord revealed that they were lying to God and lying to the church, and the Lord killed them because of that. So, I find this law, this principle, that when I would do good, by the way, He's the one who is willing to do good, evil is right there present with me. It's in, it's in the realm. Indeed, Galatians says, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary. They're at odds with one another, so that you do not do the things that you describe to do. So, here we have Paul describing the struggle as a believer. Here we have a very real description, right? An amen of our struggle that we have day in and day out. Because here, the apostle is one that is described as one... Does this this depict you? As one who hates sin. One who desires to do what is good. One who delights in the law of God. One who regrets it when he does sin... And now yet we're going to see one who is going to thank God for that deliverance that comes to the believer. You see, this is the way it is for Christians, you see. you see. But the one who is seeking the God, the one who is really progressing in his faith, the one who is growing closer to God is more and more evident of his sins. And I think that's what we have here in the Apostle Paul. The closer you get to the the glorious light of the glory of God, the more your sins are going to be made manifest. And this is what Paul is crying out here. And this is consistent with many, many persons throughout church history. Augustine at one point early in his life held to this other view of Romans chapter 7. But he changed his mind, and this were his words. Augustine said, What is said in Romans chapter 7 cannot be applied to any other than those who are the regenerate. John Calvin said concerning this text that Paul, Paul in his own person, describes the weakness of believers and how great that weakness is. Look at Romans chapter 6. 
and verse 19. I wonder if Calvin had this verse in mind in particular, where Paul says, I speak in in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He admits it, that in our flesh, we as believers still struggle with that weakness that unredeemed portion of our humanity that has not yet been redeemed and made to be completely like God. The Westminster Confession, speaking concerning the believer's work, says they are defiled. This is our even our best works, mind you, that even our best works are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. I would hate to stand before God and only be accountable to God for the very best day that I've lived in my life. Because why? All of our good works are tainted with this fleshly remnant. See, we don't do anything perfect. That's why we need a perfect Savior. That's why we need the perfect righteousness of Christ to forgive us. Here's the Belgic Confession, Article 29. There remains in the believer great infirmities, but they fight, the real believer, they fight against them through the Spirit all of the days of their life. Can you resonate with that? We don't get to rest, do we? (laughs) Day in and day out. We wake up in the morning, the battle is still with us. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism. Can the converted keep God's commandments? The answer, no. But even the holiest men, while they're in their life, have only a small beginning of obedience. Yet so, that with earnest purpose... They're still striving for it, in other words. They begin to live. They begin to progress, not only in some, but according to all of the commandments of God, you see. So we're not just... Uh, you've totally misunderstand me, misunderstood me. You think, well, we're, we're just going to sin. We've got to sin. No, that's not the case. We might sin. We're going to sin, you see. It's inevitable. But we don't. We are not characterized by sin, as sinners. We're characterized in the New Testament as saints, the one that are going on, the one that are, are progressing on. We're, we have that desire to be made like Christ. Although at times we just cry out, "Oh God, forgive me and help me." So you see, when I would do good, evil is right there, present within me. Again, verse 22 of chapter 7, reiterating the fact that Paul was a a man who sought after God. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I don't think the sinner can say that. Not even a Pharisee of Pharisees would have that love and delight for the law of God in the inward man. By the way, if he was an unbeliever, who, who would be the inward man? See, the inward man is 
us in our renewed nature before God. Then in verse 23, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, that principle of sin which is in my members. What Paul is saying here, we're still subject to that for lack of a better term, that spiritual flesh that works through this material flesh and it is active in our, in our members, in our bodily functions. Sin finds itself, manifests itself in our mouth, in our lips, upon our tongue, in our feet, in our hands, our eyes, and our ears. The human body is so oftentimes the manifestation of for that evil that is so apparent that we cannot escape. So so we have this struggle, right? This is every day, okay? Amen? Can you resonate with this? This is where we live. We struggle with this every day. But also, this is where we live. As we cry out in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's kind of like the earth crying out, looking forward to its the glorified earth. We, we cry out to God, Lord, I, I don't like this. I want to be made more like You. I will to do good and I do it not. The things that I hate, those are the things that I do. Oh God, I'm a wretched man. Help me, Lord. Give me grace. Give me strength. But the answer is with us right now, folks. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but still with the flesh, that principle of sin is always there, lurking its its ugly head. Chapter 8 and verse 1, here's the hope, here's the glorious truth. Despite the fact of this struggle... Hallelujah. Here's the here's hallelujah course. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The fact that God came in the world to save sinners. That's us. We rejoice in that mercy, that grace, that favor that He's displayed upon us. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. By the regenerative powers of God, when He freed us from this law of sin and death, He worked in us a greater power by by His Spirit that made us alive and quickened us and caused us to seek after God, to seek to bear fruit, to seek to please God. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do... You see, again, Paul is still comparing himself with the law, and he's in chapter 8. You see the the beautiful theme here? He's not breaking this up. Just just scratch that chapter 8 out of your Bibles, because the same theme is still here. There really shouldn't be a break there. That's my opinion. For what the law could not do, verse 3, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. 
And here's the glory of it all, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, you see. We don't give in to sin. We don't say, oh, it's just inevitable. I'm a sinner, I'm going to sin. No, but it's very, very factual and true that right now, day in and day out, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us, not through me pulling myself up by my bootstraps and saying, I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep the law, but by the Holy Spirit who lives in me, that's working in me, uh, enables us and empowers us to not walk according to the flesh, but in order to please God. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same powerful Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and will give life to our mortal fleshly bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us in order that we might please God. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Jesus said the man who built his house upon the sand, when the winds and the rain and the storm came, that house fell. But the one who built his house upon the solid rock, when the winds and the rain and the storm came, that house stood strong. It stands strong to those of us who are not in the flesh, who do not live according to the flesh, but those who us who live by the power of the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. So here's the proof that's in the pudding in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you see there's great hope. There's great victory. There's great strength. There's great promise. Again, we don't want to get it in our minds that as Christians, we have two complete equal natures. The good nature and the bad nature. The nature that's from God and the nature that is of the devil. I like the, the, the black dog and the white dog are the same size and they're always fighting against each other. No. That, that theory is very wrong. We, have, we are one person. We have one nature that has been renewed by God unto holiness that is made like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. The trouble is though, as we've seen in this text, we are not yet removed totally from the old man. He's dead. We've got to reckon Him dead indeed. Reckon ourselves indeed dead unto sin and alive to God. But His remnants are still with us. The old habits can still raise their head because we still struggle with our own humanity. But praise God we have the victory. 
We have the power. We have the provision. We have the potential not to sin. You know, Peter says so much of the same thing as Paul said when he wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, I beg you, pleads with his hearers, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul. Abstain from these things. You see, He tells them that. He gives them this command because as believers in Christ, we have the ability and the power by the Holy Spirit not to sin. By His grace, by His power. So we can avoid it. We can refrain from it. We can shun evil. We can say no and seek to honor God. And what is this earth? It's our practice field, you see, that we do this day in and day out. Dying to self, dying to sin. We're alive to God. Let's honor and please Him. Not conforming ourselves to those former lust. Yes, we cry out, O wretched man that I am, but we also praise God. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord who leads us into victory. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You that You are achieving in us a glorious victory. That You purpose that You will to do according to Your good pleasure concerning our salvation. You promised us Your very presence that You will not forsake us or leave us to our own devices. And Father, I pray from this day forward for the rest of our lives that we will continue to appropriate Your grace. That we would hate sin more and more that You would fill us with Your Spirit so that we would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Be glorified in our lives, we pray. In Christ's holy name, Amen.